Well, Thanksgiving is almost here once again. That time of year when America celebrates the gluttony and uh, of turkey and mashed potatoes and worships football players and makes sacrifices to the gods of Black Friday shopping. I don't know how many of you actually will spend Thursday in contemplation of the many blessings that God has bestowed upon us. I'm sure some people might spend a minute or two praying over their turkey and uh, maybe even let everyone around the table share something they're thankful for. So my guess is that aside from those 30 seconds of deep felt, um, heart-filled grace, gracefulness that you know, most households across the land will probably spend the day thinking of things other than lifting their thanks to God. And before the day is even over, because of the way stores have changed the holiday, they will be standing in line to buy more things that they won't thank God for. And that's what Thanksgiving is these days. But it wasn't always like that. Our nation, even before the beginning of our nation, was soaked in faith and thanksgiving to God. It was amazing how much thankfulness was lifted up to God by uh, officials and entire towns and states and, and the nation. We heard George Washington's proclamation. When I say, and, and I want to tell you about how Thanksgiving was started over 100 years before the pilgrims even got to Plymouth Rock. When I say um, in 1492 he sailed the ocean blue, who do you think I'm talking about? Columbus, yeah, good job. You guys are history buffs already. So, here's, uh, um, they had the three ships. What were they? Nina, Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Very good. And, and just like Black Friday shoppers, they were driven by sails. And they came across the sea. And, and where did Columbus first land in America? On his feet. <laughs> okay, actually, it was in the Bahamas which is probably a nice place to land in the Americas. and So he was in the Bahama Islands and, and he named the island San Salvador, which means Holy Savior. So they got to this land. He thought it was the Indies, but uh, he got there and he called it Holy Savior because he was so thankful to get there. Technically, he didn't truly discover it since there were already people there, but it was a new discovery to Europe. And since Columbus was actually trying to reach India... He was trying to go the, the long way around to get to India. The people that he met there became the Indians. And that's why we call the natives of this land Indians. And today we celebrate Columbus Day in October each year. Actually, every day can be like Columbus Day if you don't have GPS. Since he was kind of veered off course. And, so, and, and Seattle, most of the country celebrates Columbus Day. Seattle and a couple other places you know, out in Washington, and, and I think there's a couple spots in the country that have changed Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day because they don't want to. They don't like the fact that America got discovered, apparently. So they dedicate the day to people who grew up out of the earth like trees, because there really were no indigenous people in America. The the historically. There are no Native Americans. I mean, we're all, if you were born in this country, you're a Native American. I'm a Native American, technically. But historically, if you go back, there were no Native Americans. They probably won't give you a, a reservation for being born here. But 
uh, as far as our earliest ancestors go, everyone in America immigrated from somewhere else. If you, all the people on the earth today, everyone who's alive today originally came out of the mountains of Ararat because that's where Noah's boat, the ship settled when the flood subsided and that's where all the people came out of and wandered around until they got to the various places in the world. So even the American Indians came from somewhere else originally. Um, Leif Erikson, if you've ever heard of him, was actually the first European explorer to land in America, is what they believed, and that was all the way back in the 11th century. But he decided that Iceland and Greenland were much nicer, and he didn't want to explore America anymore. And I guess landing in, in Newfoundland rather than the Bahamas will do that to you. So you can tell just by the name, America, who really discovered America, and that's Captain America which is named after him. But seriously, Christopher Columbus is America's first undocumented immigrant, and he was really an, ex- uh, an extremely intelligent and adventurous man. I mean, the, the, if you learn about Columbus, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him this morning, you'll be kind of impressed about who he was and what he was about. He was born in 1451 in the Republic of Genoa, which was in Italy, and he had a wife, he had two kids, he learned to speak Latin and Portuguese and Castilian. He, he never actually spoke Italian, even though he was from Italy. He studied astronomy. He studied geography. He studied history. He was a cartographer. He was in several other businesses with his family. Columbus was apparently a spirit-filled Christian. I mean, from what he wrote, what you read in his logbooks, he put together several collections of his own writings, and they reveal a man of strong faith. And he didn't set out to sail the ocean blue because he looked at a map. He felt that God directed him to take this journey. And this is, this is one of the things he wrote. He says, I'm quoting here, it was the Lord who put it into my mind. I could feel His hand upon me. The fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies and all who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because He comforted me with rays of marvelous inspiration from the Holy Scriptures. I am a most noteworthy sinner, but I have cried out to the Lord for grace and mercy, and they have covered me completely. I have found the sweetest consolation since I made it my whole purpose to enjoy His marvelous presence. For the execution of the voyage to the Indies, I did not make use of intelligence mathematics or maps it is simply the fulfillment of what isaiah had prophesied no one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our savior if it is just and if the intention is purely for his holy service the working out of all things has been assigned to each person by our lord but it happens according to his sovereign will even though he gives advice Oh, what a gracious Lord who desires that people should perform for Him those things for which He holds Himself responsible. Day and night, moment by moment, everyone should express their most devoted gratitude for Him. Gives you a different picture than what you learned in school, doesn't it? Christopher, which is, you can break his name down, um, Christ, or Christ, and Foro, it means Christ-bearer. Topher, is bearer or, or to, to carry. And so Christopher is Christ bearer, and that's what his name means. He believed that Christ gave him his calling. 
he quoted he has a, he had a whole list of bible verses that he used in, in that as his encouragement and motivation um, Isaiah 49 1 and 6 were a couple of his favorites I'll read 1 through 6 from Isaiah 49 it says listen to me you coastlands pay attention you people who live far away the Lord summoned me from birth he commissioned me when my mother brought me into the world he made my mouth like a sharp sword he hid me in the hollow of his hand he made me like a sharpened arrow he hid me in his quiver he said to me you are my servant Israel through whom I will reveal my splendor. But I thought, I have worked in vain. I have expended my energy for absolutely nothing. But the Lord will vindicate me. My God will reward me. So now the Lord says, the one who formed me from birth to be his servant and did this now to restore Jacob to himself so that Israel might be gathered to him and I will be honored in the Lord's sight for my God is my source of strength, he says. Is it too insignificant a task for you to be my servant? to reestablish the tribes of Jacob and to restore the remnant of Israel, I will make you a light to the nations so you can bring my deliverance to the remotest region of the earth. So that passage was an inspiration to Columbus to leave Europe and go find the other part of the world across the ocean. When Columbus was alive in the 15th, 15th century in Portugal, it was Portugal was Europe's dominant sea power they were the place to go to to navigate the ocean and to learn lisbon which is still the capital today of portugal was the center of navigational science so people came there with the, the minds of the world came there with their information about sailing around the world or at least what they knew of sailing around the world they didn't go west from there they always went east and um it was the center of 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 navigational science. It was quite the place to be if you were a sailor. So Columbus got there in 1476 and not, no doubt he was greatly helped by the, the influence of all that learning and study and science that they had been doing and the speculation about the nautical world. Contrary to popular belief, scholars, the intelligent people, had known for a long time that the world was round. They didn't all believe the world was flat and they would fall off the edge of it. That a Greek mathematician and, and a geographer named Erosthenes, who lived two centuries before Jesus, had already made global projections about a round earth. And about 1,700 years before Columbus ever came on the scene, Erosthenes had calculated the earth's dimensions to within 10%. So people had known for quite some time the shape and size of the world. And they knew that. They started studying that based on what the Bible said. They read the Scriptures and they said, this seems to make it sound like the world is round. And so they did studying and they found that out. So Columbus was inspired by Scripture to sail around the world. He was equipped by science and he was motivated by current events, but, but there are some who believe that, that Columbus actually was Jewish. His heritage was Jewish when he started out. And there were actually a lot of Jews who were living in that part of the world on, in Columbus's day. Of course, the major Jewish emigration to Europe first began with the destruction of God's temple in 70 AD when the Romans came in and they just sacked the town and wrecked everything. A lot of Jews left Israel and a lot of them moved into that area around Portugal and Spain and, and the Mediterranean there. Um, even centuries before that, though, Jews had already started immigrating into that part of the world. They had spread out through Asia Minor, which is Turkey, and they had gone even farther to settle into the Iberian Peninsula, which Iberia is, is 
Portugal and Spain, that area. And if you remember, even when the Apostle Paul was doing his missionary journeys, there were Jews who had spread out through that part of the world. And so he, whenever he went there, he sought them out to go and preach to them and spread the Gospel. And, um, and he, he spoke of the need for missionary work among the Jews out in Spain. He wanted to go to Spain. If you, if you remember reading about that, he had hoped to take the Gospel there himself. And if you've ever heard of Sephardim or, or Sephardic Jews, it's talking about the Jews who live out there in, in that in area in Spain and Portugal. Spain is where they come from. And for over a thousand years before Columbus, many Jews had made Spain their homeland. But then around the 8th century, this is hundreds of years before Columbus, Muslim armies had come in from North Africa and they invaded the Iberian Peninsula and they took it over. So the Muslims ruled Spain and they ruled Portugal and they were over all the area. And so a bunch of Spanish leaders got together and they wanted to retake Spain. They wanted to move back in and take over their country. They called it the Reconquista, which basically just means reconquest. They wanted to move back in and conquer their own country again against all the Islamic invaders. And one of the big problems, though, was that a big source of income was trade with the Far East. So they traded with India and China and all those Oriental nations out there, or kingdoms back then. And by the 1400s, the Muslims had cut off all passage to the East. They took over that whole area so nobody could get from Europe into the Orient to do the trading that they wanted to do. And all the land routes were cut off and nobody had a sea route because they didn't know you could go around the other way. So there was no way to get out East in order to do trade and make the money that they needed to battle their, you know, to have a support their, their country. And if they could only figure out how to get there by sea, their financial problems would be solved. And so there was a real big interest in being able to get to India and to China without having to cross Muslim territory. And by the late 13th century, the Christian kingdoms, there were a couple major Christian kingdoms that were had kind of rebuilt up in Spain. One of them was Castile, another one was Aragon. And they had worked together to reconquer a lot of Spain. So from the 8th century, where the Muslims had taken over, all the way to the 13th century, wars had been going on, and the Spaniards had been successful in a couple of major players, kingdoms, had wiped out all the, the Muslim conquerors, except for there was one last bastion of, of Muslim strength left in, uh, the, in the south of Spain. And so in 1479, the two kingdoms, Castile and Aragon, were united by marriage, which is the way kingdoms usually come together, by Ferdinand, who was from Aragon, and Isabella, who was from Castile. And you've heard of Ferdinand and Isabella. So the, the only Spanish Muslim kingdom that was still holding out was Grenada, which was in the south of Spain. And, and at the time all that was happening, Columbus was already sailing. He, is, he had already been sailing. He would already been studying and formulating his ideas on how to get out to India by sea since the land routes were all blocked. And it really was the perfect time for that kind of a thing to happen. It was like God was orchestrating events for the discovery of America. It, the, the science of navigation had developed enough so that someone would be able to put all the pieces together if they worked hard 
and, and you know, there was navigation technology. There was a device called the astrolabe and, and the quadrant had been developed so that you could, anywhere in the world, you could look up at the sun and, and the stars and figure out where you were by latitude and longitude on the planet. So they had already developed this technology and to be able to track their position and new schools of thought had started coming together in cartography so that they could map out where they were going and where they wanted to go and make possible all sorts of new discoveries that would soon be happening. Once Columbus kicked this off, a lot of discoverers went around the world to find new places. So there was one young mariner and cartographer who would, who would kind of research all this stuff and combine all these tools and ideas and come up with a radical plan to reach the east by sailing west. Which was a brand, it was a crazy idea. When most people he presented it to, it's, they, they thought he was nuts. And it was obviously it was Christopher Columbus who, who had the idea, but the, his source of, of mo- his motivation, like he said, was not the technology, but rather his faith in the Bible. That was what drove him to really want to take on this mission. He was driven more by biblical prophecy than he was about astronomy and the tools that they had for figuring out where they were in the world. He compiled this whole collection of Bible passages, in, in a, he called it in his, his book of prophecies. And I'll just read a couple that he collected. One is Proverbs 8.27, and it says, When he, God, established the heavens, I was there. When he had inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. And that was one of the things that said, yeah, the world is round. You can go around it. Um, another one is Isaiah 40, at verse 21, says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So that's another one that said, maybe I can go around the other way. You know, I know we can sail this way to get there. Maybe I can sail this way to get there. And so, um, and then Isaiah 43, 15 was another one he wrote down. It says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. So that was another motivator for Columbus that said if he's going to get there, it's going to be God that takes him there. I mean, the sea was a dangerous place. Many people had lost their lives through shipwrecks and storms and various other tragedies at sea. So everybody knew that the ocean was a dangerous place. But Columbus said, I'm following God. If God says I can get there, God will get me there. And, and, and that's not what they usually teach you about Columbus in school these days. Yet, Columbus said that finding a new world, finding the new world, finding America, was the fulfillment of what Isaiah has, had prophesied. He, he believed that Isaiah prophesied the discovery of the new world. And, and these days, it's... Columbus is not a very popular guy these days, especially like you know places like Seattle that are trying to get rid of him. And these days, it's much more popular to blame Columbus and other discoverers for the death of so many Indians due to disease and and the theft of America from indigenous peoples. A lot of people live today as if the world would be is, is worse off because of America's discovery. There's a, it's crazy to think how that attitude abounds in our in our own country, as if it would be better if the Indians were still here living in teepees and hunting buffalo, and we were all still subjects of the British crown and forced to worship the, the state religion. And it's crazy to think if 
if we had not discovered America, what the world would be like. It would be in a completely different place. And as you may already know, Columbus, he presented his plan to quite a few people. He tried back home around Portugal, or, or around in Italy and, and Genoa, where he was from, and, and a lot of people reject him as crazy. And so that's why he went out to Spain and uh, in Portugal. And, and so in, that was in 1489 that he left Portugal. He went to Spain to present his plan to Ferdinand and Isabella, the king and queen. And Queen Isabella was really impressed, not only by the, the technical details of the plan, but also the theological motivations behind it. She, she really liked the thought that he believed that God was directing him to do this. And so he, he, she took his ideas and handed, gave them to a commission at the University of Salamanca there. And those people reviewed the plan, they looked it over, and they rejected it. They said the distance is just too far. We believe that it may be, there may be access, but you can't get there by ship. You just couldn't survive the journey. But, but the queen told Columbus that he could, once the war was over, because they were still doing the Reconquista to try to take over Spain again, when that was all over, he could come back and repetition her. And wouldn't you know it, in 1492, Granada, the last Muslim region, was retaken. And so Columbus was summoned again and he was asked what he would need to undertake his plan. And so he kind of laid out what he would need, the ships and the supplies and those kinds of things. He, he had asked for, whenever he got there, his payment to be 10% of whatever treasures he was able to bring back to fund the, the nation. So whatever I find in India when I get there, I get to keep 10% as my commission, so to speak. But, but Spain would, had spent so much on the war that they couldn't even afford to give him the ships that he needed. And, and so they, they said that basically he couldn't go because they couldn't afford it. She would have to hawk the crown jewels if, if they were going to buy him passage. And so Spain couldn't underwrite the cost of his mission, so Columbus was denied. And, and after being rejected by the royal court, there were three men that approached the king and queen on his behalf. They heard what happened and they went to the king and they said that they were, um, they were all conversos. These were all guys who started out Jews and they were Spanish and Portuguese Jews and they had converted to Christianity. One was Juan Cabrero, another was Luis de Santagel, and another was Gabriel Sanchez. And I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but they were all men who were, they were wealthy men, they had great influence. One was a an advisor to the king, another was a, a, a friend of the king, another one was the, the minister of um, finance there. And so they were very influential and powerful people within the, the court. And they offered to fund Columbus's voyage with their own personal finances. They said, we know you can't afford this. We will pay for it if you'll allow him to go. And so there are researchers that believe that they did that in hopes of finding a new promised land. Because all the Jews had been kicked out of Israel. They, you know, a lot of them left after Roman had conquered. But after the Muslims took over, there were no Jews allowed. And so they were hoping to find some place to escape religious persecution. Because if you've, there was also things happening in Spain against the Jews. If you ever heard of a little thing called the Spanish Inquisition, it was going on right about that time. And, and if, you know that, um, if you know anything about that, you know that people were basically forced to convert to Catholicism, or they were tortured to death. And the Jews were one of the main targets of that persecution. And so those who converted were called conversos, 
And those who played along to escape torture, but who secretly held to their Judaism were called Moranos, which in Hebrews means forced convert, but in Spanish sounds more like swine. And so it's an interesting kind of play on words. But, but there was a lot of stuff going on against the Jewish population that was there in Spain because of the Inquisition. So terrible, terrible religious persecution. And on March 31st, in the spring of 1492, the king and queen made a proclamation. They said all Jews who refused to convert would be expelled from Spain. They would not be allowed to stay there. And they were given basically four months to pack up and get out. So tens of thousands of these Moranos were tortured by the Spanish Inquisition. And they were forced to give up the names of friends and family members and people that they know who were then burned at the stake. And, and their land and their property were stolen and they were divided up between the Catholic Church and the Crown, you know, who basically just kept them as spoils of war. And there are a group of scholars today who believe that Columbus was originally a Jew and, and that he purposely hid the evidence of his background in order to escape the ethnic cleansing that was against his, his, his heritage. And one of the, there's quite a few clues that they, that they use. One of them was that of his Jewish heritage was that um, in his last will, you know, he left his last will and testament, he left a tithe or one-tenth of his income to the poor and to provide an anonymous dowry for poor girls. And that was a Jewish custom, to leave a tithe to the poor. He also left money to a, a specific Jew that he named who hung out at the entrance of the Lisbon Jewish Quarter there. And another clue was uh, he had this triangular signature of, of dots and letters that resembled its inscriptions found on gravestones of Jewish, uh, you know, at Jewish burial sites in Spain. And he told his heirs, he left instructions for them to use that same signature when he was gone. And it turns out that the inscription was actually a secret way to represent the Kaddish, which is a prayer that's recited in the synagogue by mourners when somebody dies. They, they pray this Kaddish. And so it looks kind of like Columbus was secretly providing a way for his sons to say that Kaddish for their Jewish father when he died without being found out. And, so, and he also left money to support the Crusades out to, to, to rescue the Holy Land that it would be liberated. And there was, so there's quite a few things. This is where it really gets interesting. The day that all the Jews were to be gone from Spain, the king and queen had excommunicated them, and the day that they had to be out was August 3rd, 1492. That day also happened to be the ninth of the Jewish month of. For the, and the Jewish people, um, they call it, it's a, actually a holiday called Tisha B'Av, which means the ninth of Av. And, and it's actually a day of fasting and mourning for the Jewish people because there are a number of major disasters that befell the Jews on that same date through their history. Most importantly, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first Jewish temple on the Tisha B'Av. And that was in 586 B.C. And then Titus Vespasian, the Roman, destroyed the second Jewish temple on Tisha B'Av in 70 A.D. So both temples were destroyed on the 9th of Av, on that day. So the expulsion of the Jews from Spain became another tragedy that was added that happened on the Tisha B'Av in 1492. And there's several others that are all remembered in this day of mourning and fasting. 
on their calendar. So on the very same day, on the Tisha B'Av, Columbus and his crew boarded his vessels. Before midnight, they got on their ships. And before sunrise, on the Tisha B'Av, that day, the day that all Jews were to officially be expelled from the country, that's when Columbus and his crew left the, the nation. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it, it could just be coincidence, but there's a lot of things that kind of fall into place. But regardless of whatever his, his actual ethnic heritage may have been, what's truly important is the same determiner for all of our futures. And that's what was the spiritual condition of his heart. More than any ethnic heritage is who are you in God's sight. When, when Columbus reached the New World and he landed in the Bahamas and he named the island San Salvador or Holy Savior, he prayed this prayer. He said, O Lord, Almighty and everlasting God, by Thy holy Word, Thou hast created the heaven and the earth and the sea. Blessed and glorified be Thy name and praised be Thy majesty which hath deigned to use us, Thy humble servants, that Thy holy name may be proclaimed in this second part of the earth. Columbus is not a great man because he discovered America. The meaning of his life, life comes from the One who died on the cross to set him free from sin and death. And he saw himself as a missionary to take the Gospel into the new world. And that's what he was praying. And I, I read before in part of his quote, he said, No one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our Savior if it is just and if the intention is purely for His holy service. So we shouldn't be afraid to set out on our own missionary journeys because God is the one who takes us there. So it, it would certainly seem that God was directing Columbus, that He was following the Holy Spirit to guide Him to the new world just like He claimed. And, and even before the pilgrims came over, God was already at work to bring the Gospel around the world. And, and, and more than, than an explorer from Spain, Columbus was an ambassador for Christ. And, and that's our Scripture for today. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. No matter where you came from or what your heritage is, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ God was reconciling in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them, and he has given us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his plea through us. We plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we would become the righteousness of God. And of course, Columbus's missionary journey led to many more people coming over to America to escape religious persecution. And God had been making preparations for a Christian nation even before the pilgrims arrived. On, on March 16th, on 1621, at the Plymouth Colony where the pilgrims were, an Indian named Samoset came strolling into the encampment. He just walked down the middle of the street and he greeted the settlers in English. 
much to their surprise. And, and he, he was a subordinate chief for the uh, Abenaki tribe. He came out of Maine originally. And he really surprised the folks at Plymouth when he started speaking to them in English. He, he had begun to learn English from sailors, who, fishermen who came up to Maine and fished off the coastland there where, where he was from, where Samoset was from. And he just happened to be down in the Plymouth area visiting another chieftain named Massasoit about 50 miles south of where the Plymouth plantation or colony was. And he learned about the settlement of these newcomers and he strolled up there to meet them because he knew their language. And soon the colonists would learn that they had an awful lot to be thankful for that God had done to protect them way before they got there. They, As it turns out, they built their colony on land that used to belong to the Patuxet Indians. And the Patuxet Indians were an extremely hostile tribe that had slaughtered every white man unfortunate enough to land on their shores. They killed. And, but four years before the pilgrims actually got there, a mysterious plague broke out and killed every person in the tribe. Man, woman, and child. They were all gone. There was an epidemic that wiped out 95,000 Indians all along the coastland. So along that New England area, there were only about 5,000 people left in various tribes. And, and it was so thoroughly devastating in that region that neighboring tribes considered the land cursed. They figured there was an evil spirit there wiping out Indians. And so they were afraid to enter that region. So not only was the land open for the pilgrims to settle there, and but it was protected by this perceived hedge of protection that you know, nobody wanted to go in and try to kill the white people and take it over because there was this evil spirit that was killing Indians. And, and so they were uh, afraid to go in. So the colonists were kind of protected by that. So Samoset greeted them and spoke to them for a while. He left and then he came back the next week with an Indian named Tisquantum or a.k.a. Squanto, who I'm sure you've heard of. And Squanto would become kind of like the Indian version of, of Joseph, the biblical Joseph who would end up saving the people of Plymouth from starvation. Now, Squanto was a Patuxet, one of those tribes that were killing off white people. But he had been captured 16 years prior to the, all this happening, and he had been taken to English or England by English sailors, and he spent nine years in England. They, were, they had taken these people over to try to give them information about where were good places to settle, and so it took him nine years to finally get back to New England. And then a guy named John, uh, or he went back with John Smith, Captain John Smith, I'm sure you've heard of. He was captured again, he had really bad luck, by a game named Thomas Hunt, who took him back to Europe and tried to sell him into slavery in Spain. But there was a Spanish monk there, this group of friars who found him and they rescued him. And they taught Squanto about Christianity. And after five more years of effort, he got to England again. And then he was finally able to get back to his homeland just six months before the pilgrims landed. And of course, he was only to discover that his entire tribe had been wiped out by this plague. And so there was no family, no friends, no one he knew before. And he wandered kind of aimless and forlorn for some time. And he finally settled in with Massasoit and the Wampanoags um, which was 50 miles south of the, where the Plymouth plantation or colony would be. And he was, he was felt very much without purpose, without direction. And that's when Samoset 
came into town and he said, you got to meet these guys. They're English speakers just like you and I. you got to come meet them. And so he took Squanto back to the colonists at Plymouth and Squanto found his purpose with the colonists. He realized that these Englishmen were helpless in the wild land. And, and the, the Plymouth colonists became Squanto's new people. He, 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 was, he asked to be allowed to stay with them in trade to teach them everything they needed to live in the land. The pilgrims had spent the, the previous winter living on the Mayflower. And they were, the men would come ashore to try to build houses, shelters for them to, to live in. But they, they spent the winter on board the ship. And they lost 47 colonists to the, the weather, to disease and sickness and scurvy and you know, malnutrition, that kind of stuff. They had set out with 102 passengers when they first left to come to America. And so almost half of them died that first winter. It was pretty tragic. And, and without some divine intervention, the rest of them surely would have died of starvation and sickness. So like Joseph of the Bible, Squanto became somewhat of a savior to these people. He taught the pilgrims how to fish and hunt the, the local wildlife, how to prepare and trade the animal pelts. And, and he taught them how to grow pumpkins and corn and various other fruits. He, he taught them how to sap the maple trees and refine it into syrup. He, he taught them how to be able to discern the, the herbs that you could eat and use for medicines. He taught them all the ways of the wild, how to survive, how to thrive out in this new land. And by the summer of that year, they had 20 acres of corn growing. And they had stocked up on meat and, and supplies. They were, they were really coming back and gaining some strength. And you can see why that first Thanksgiving was such a special occasion that God had saved them from certain death through the aid of, of the Squanto. And not only did God save the pilgrims, He had been at work for centuries before the birth of our nation to bring the church to a new land. And, and to make possible the freedom and the prosperity that would allow the body of Christ to flourish and to thrive and, and for the Gospel to be proclaimed far and wide around the globe. I mean, I, I won't get into our American heritage because I've gone over that a number of times before, but I, I may share some more Thanksgiving history next week, but I hope that this Thanksgiving, that you before you give yourself over to turkey and mashed potatoes and, and fall for the siren call of Black Friday sales and get all caught up in that stuff, I pray that you would consider why God made possible this new nation that we're a part of. Think about the things that God did. How much providence was required to bring about a new nation conceived in liberty and, and built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. All the things that God worked to put in place the ability for us to be here today. And then think about what God has been investing in your personal life. In you, personally. In your family. In your household. And the call that He has put upon you as a Christian. Will you be a Columbus for Jesus? To take His message into the world. In, in, into a, a, a world of, of lost and dying people? Will you be a squanto to the dying people and take the life-giving power of the Gospel to save them? Will you follow the direction of the Holy Spirit to, to give them freedom from sin and death for a people who desperately, desperately need a Savior? I pray that this Thursday as Thanksgiving comes, that you'll not only thank God for all His blessings, but you'll also thank Him for the opportunity. That you'll look for that opportunity. What has He been preparing 
you for? Because he was preparing America a long time before there was America so that the Gospel could be spread. And the Gospel was spread. Because of America's Christian heritage, the Gospel has been spread around the globe. And we're kind of losing it now. We're kind of failing at our mission today in many ways. But for a time, America was a great proponent of spreading the Gospel around the world. There are still people doing it. But we've kind of fallen behind what we used to do. So, what is God preparing you personally for? Because He's still working to spread the Gospel. He's still working to save lives. So I pray that you'd not only be thankful to Him, but also... Look for that opportunity that He's given. Thank Him for that opportunity. Look for that that call and obey Him. Be a Christ-bearer like Columbus. Be a a Savior like Squanto by bringing the good news of the Gospel to people. Introduce them to the One that can save them from sin and death. Like Columbus said, no one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our Savior if it is just and if the intention is purely purely for His holy service. God has a mission for you today. I can't tell you what it is specifically, but God has something in mind for you that He has built you up for, that He has given you talents and resources for. God wants to use you to build His kingdom. Will you accept the call? Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for all the gifts that You have given us. You have blessed us in so many ways. You've blessed our nation. You've blessed our, our families. You've blessed us with... We, we, no one in here is starving to death like the pilgrims were. No one in here is, is dying of the plague. No one in here is, is trying to figure out how they're going to make it till tomorrow. We are so blessed, God. Yeah, we all have difficulties and health problems and various financial issues, but none of us have seen the hardships that some of these, the religious persecution and the, and the starvation and the disease that people saw back when you were first building this nation. God, we're so grateful for all the blessings that you've given us. It really, truly is a rich and prosperous nation. And I pray that you'd help us to see that those are your blessings, that the only reason we have anything good is because of you whether it's in our personal lives or in our, in our national lives. And I pray that You would help us to carry Your good news so that more people could have the prosperity of Your Spirit living within them, could have the gift of new life because of Your sacrifice for our sins. I pray that You would help us to take that good news to the rest of the world around us. Help us to build Your kingdom, God, and save more lives for You. In Your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.